Hello, and welcome. My name is Dr. Anthony Hackett, and this is the Is That a Thing podcast, the podcast where we use the sharp knife of evidence to dissect dogma and controversies in emergency medicine and critical care. Although we are physicians, this podcast is not medical advice, but aims to discuss and make available the latest and hottest topics in academics in real time to help influence the best practice at the patient's bedside. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Anthony Hackett with Dr. Mike McDonald here with the Is That a Thing podcast. And we have a lot of questions about pediatric fever, specifically uh, a lot of common questions that come up with that and some of the dogmas are associated with pediatric fever. So Mike, thanks for coming with us today on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about how we got started on this? Yeah, sure. And thanks for having me back on. Glad to be back. Yeah, man. Uh, I think you and I like to talk about just questions that we have that impact our daily practice. And, and this is one of the most common ones I think that we see is there are a lot of questions about fever. We started talking about pediatric teething and whether teething actually causes a fever or not. Right. Because you hear it all the time. Patients, parents bring in their kid and they say, well, they've got a fever because they're teething, but they're kind of fussy and this and that. And I've always kind of wondered whether whether that is really a thing, whether right. it actually causes a fever or if it's just, you know, every kid is cutting teeth all the time. And so is it just kind of too true and unrelated? Yeah, right. Do they have a fever all the time? Right. Yeah. Well, so, they're teething all the time. And is it teething all the time. Something else causing the fever. And we yeah, they must have a fever all the time. But and also I think that brings up a good point, right? Most kids are going to get some sort of viral process every couple of weeks. And so is that associated with teething or is that something that's actually independent of teething? And I think we were both taught in medical school residency practice that people, kids have fevers when they're teething, but actually when we looked into the literature, it was really fascinating what we found, but I think we should start with kind of what the heck is fever just as a refresher. Why do we even have a fever? So first off, I think distinguishing fever from hyperpyrexia is important because they're two different things, right? So basically fever is a CNS mediated kind of resetting of the thermostat because you're it's your hypothalamus that regulates your body temperature and and that's usually pretty pretty tightly defined but then a fever is kind of an abnormal rise of that thermostat but it's cns mediated that's the important thing and right and so like interleukin mediated essentially right tnf all these things at the end of the game, it's essentially prostaglandin E2 that mediates the fever at the end of the day. And that's why things like Motrin and Tylenol work, right? Because they work on that prostaglandin E2 system, correct? Correct. Yeah, that's where they break the loop because prostaglandin E2 is what raises the thermostat in the hypothalamus. Right. Interesting, interleukin-1 is one of the things that, that stimulates prostaglandin E2 production. And that also is what makes you sleepy, which is why a fever makes you sleepy. Interesting. I, I thought it was really interesting. As I was, as that I was is kind of cool. So Tylenol should wake you up then, but I don't think that works for me. Yeah, no. <laughs> only when you have a fever. <laughs> yeah, only when you have a fever. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, and, and I think the thought behind why we actually have fevers is because that hyperpyrexia stimulates the innate immunity, essentially releases all these cytokines and stimulates this sort of downstream effect, which was thought in our sort of primitive days to essentially help us fight disease. Is that correct? Right. And there's a lot of debate about whether actually a fever is helpful uh, in fighting infection. There's there's kind of pros and cons to it. Right. Uh, some bacteria and viruses do more poorly. They don't thrive as well. And so the thought is that a higher ambient or a higher core temperature tries to kill those things. 
Well, some do better at a higher temperature. And a lot of the beneficial effects of a fever, the higher the fever gets, the more those, there's kind of a paradoxical effect where the higher your fever gets, the worse you do. And, and the it kind of limits the, the benefit right. of it. Yeah, I think the classic case of that is sort of the malaria cure for syphilis, if you remember that, right? Like, so syphilis, the syphilis spirochete actually lives at a lower temperature technically. And so if you could raise the body set point, one of the treatments for, for syphilis back in the day used to be to give somebody malaria you get those cyclical fevers and that essentially would treat the syphilis, but clearly we don't do that anymore, but that's one example of where that's useful. Right. So uh, <laughs> thanks syphilis for that one. But so I think a lot of parents will tell me sort of, his fever was 104 and I was just worried it was going to melt his brain. But we found some interesting stuff about that, right? Like I was surprised at how high your fever can actually get before it quote unquote melts your brain, but it really doesn't melt your brain. Obviously you have seizures and things like that. What, what did you find out about that? Right, exactly. So protein denaturation, that, that happens at really high temperatures, um, higher than your body's going to make it go. I was interested to find that um, what your CNS and your body can actually produce is about 107.6. It's 42 degrees Celsius. Yeah. Considered kind of the height of what a fever could be. Right. And really over 106, you've got you've got hyperthermia factors at play. Like you have to have a high ambient temperature to get over 106. Yeah. High ambient temperature, other medications, drugs, that sort of thing. And that's the only time I've really ever seen that is with either, you know, heat heat exhaustion or heat stroke or somebody who's on a bunch of medications that limit sweating or something pharmacological, but but by innate mechanisms, you cannot really get over a fever of 105, 106. And it's not necessarily going to melt your brain. It's not essentially good for you to be like that, but it's not going to melt your brain is what we found. Yeah. And that makes intuitive sense, right? Your body is not going to like ruin itself in response to to an external stimulus. Yeah. We just let people do that. They just ruin themselves on their own. So the body (laughs) won't do it for you, but but yeah, and it was interesting. I found this paper about people's actual temperature. Cause I think one look of our, you and my, I know Hugh's not here right now, but his pet peeve too is sort of patients that tell us like, Hey, I run cold. So 99 is a fever for me. And I, I thought, well, is that really a thing? Maybe, maybe it is a thing, right? So maybe, maybe there's a huge variation in average temperatures. And there was actually a paper put out by the infectious disease society of America in 2019 that looked at a huge, it was a huge meta-analysis actually looked at average body temperature between 1935 and 2017. And what they found was that the site of measurement of the temperature measures matters a lot more than the actual variability of the temperature. It looks like temperatures can vary between 35 and essentially 37 Celsius, but depending on where you measure it really makes all of the difference. So what they found was that axillary temperatures, tympanic temperatures, and oral temperatures in that order essentially are the most accurate with oral being the most accurate. And then tympanic and axillary are pretty close to each other. And then rectal is actually the most accurate type of temperature that we could take. But to my understanding, a lot of people aren't really doing rectal temperatures in adults anymore. And even in kids sometimes, but I always prefer a rectal temperature because we always were taught that it was the most accurate, but this meta-analysis actually confirms that that's the most accurate. And one other thing they really yeah, found- Speak for was, yourself, buddy. I take off yeah, the nurses all the time asking for a not, rectal temp. Not do a rectal temp. <laughs> I mean, I have, I have given up on it, but I would prefer them all everybody to have a rectal temperature. I think our population of patients that present in the emergency department might be lower if everybody get a rectal temperature. So that's right. Maybe, that's right. You know, that we may, we may run ourselves out of business with that, but it, it appears from this paper that rectal temperatures are the most accurate followed by oral and then uh, axillary and tympanic are about equal. And another thing they found that was really interesting is that older people 
over the age of 60 actually have a slightly lower body temperature, but not to the degree that you would expect, like 0.2 degrees Celsius, which is almost like 0.5 degrees Fahrenheit, which I found kind of interesting, but I think it has to do a lot with cortisol and sort of diurnal variations in patients' po- patients' temperatures and stuff, which is kind of interesting. So the whole like I run colder thing isn't necessarily true. You may run colder, but doesn't mean that your fever isn't a fever as defined by the classical teaching of 38.5 degrees Celsius, right? That's kind of like what I found there. Right. And, and yeah, you may find if a patient takes their temperature all the time, they're going to find about a one degree Celsius variability just throughout the day from, from right. your morning low to your afternoon high. And and there's a lot of interesting stuff. We can get in the weeds of, of all this stuff. Right. One of the things I found most interesting was those infrared thermometers that they use, like the forehead thermometers. They're, they can either be falsely low or falsely high. Right. Most most inaccurate temperatures are falsely low just because they're kind of mixing ambient temperature with it. Right. But I thought those infrared ones being either low or high was really interesting because I, I didn't it, know that before. Yeah. If you look at the data too, it looks like actually those temperature devices are actually designed to be positioned over the temporal artery, which I actually didn't know. I thought they were just like the forehead scanner, which is what everybody does. And I think that's probably part of the reason why they are so glaringly inaccurate, but every single study we looked at, like large studies that are well done shows that those temporal thermometers are essentially random number generators and they're <laughs> pretty much yeah, they're inaccurate. Worthless. Yeah. Like almost a degree Celsius off, which is, is pretty significant if somebody has a fever, right? Like yeah. patients probably are more accurate in telling us that they actually feel when they say I have a subjective fever, you might as well just go with that rather than the temporal temperature. So that was, yeah. that was kind and of interesting. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm old school enough that, um, I still do ask if I really want to know somebody's real temperature, I'll add, I'll still ask for a rectal temp. Yeah. The core temp is great. So interestingly enough, like when we looked at this, we kind of really got into a lot of rabbit holes here. And one of the things that uh, we looked at it was whether or not Motrin or Tylenol is a better antipyretic. Cause I always wondered when you're under six months, kids under six months, you can't give them Motrin. We see a lot of those kids, right? They show up and they can't get the fever down with Tylenol. But interestingly enough, it seems like Tylenol actually has a little bit of a less effective antipyretic in a large meta-analysis that was done. They found that Motrin actually did a lot better of a job to keep fevers down. But did you find anything, Mike, on whether or not, like, can we ever get a fever to be back to normal with Motrin and Tylenol? I didn't find anything. Actually, it was very difficult to find any data on whether or not we can actually control a fever with two meds. We can make it go down, but did you find anything on that? Unfortunately, not really. And I'm not sure how important it is. So yeah, a lot of, I agree. you know, especially parents will fixate on the number and, and the number it looks like is actually not that important, especially in our current era of pediatric vaccinations, where a, a lot of the historical cutoffs for, well, above this number, you're more likely to have spontaneous, spontaneous bacterial, uh, you know, infection is not really the case anymore. I agree. Uh, the number yeah. doesn't really matter. So getting it back to 98.6 or whatever makes mom happy is, is really not that important. Yeah. I think the trends and whether or not the child is actually feeling well enough to drink fluids is probably the most important thing for me. That's what I always tell parents. Like we just want to get the temperature down. It doesn't have to be back to 98.6 or whatever you consider normal 99 or whatever, if you run cold, which we just disproved, but whatever it may <laughs> be, or you run hot, but it looks like from what we can see that there's no data on whether or not Motrin and Tylenol together really decrease the temperature back to normal, but they do decrease it in trend-like fashion. That's what we want to see. Right. Um, and, and that's to, to the pathophysiology of it. When 
prostaglandin E2 is what makes your fever. If you can block production of that, then then you're going to reset the thermostat. Right. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get that temperature down. And I think that goes, going back to what you said before, I think we were both taught and we were both trained in the military. We probably had very similar teachers. This thing about a fever that's greater than 102 is associated with serious bacterial illness. Is that what you were taught? That's what I was taught. But we both looked that up and found out where that comes from. But I don't think that that's the case anymore. Is that true? Yeah. So most of those studies are are well before our current immunizations. I mean, I've been practicing since since the H flu vaccine was a thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, a lot of that information is, is old and, and predates that. Yeah. Uh, those, those vaccines. And so now that we have, it's not as urgent a thing. It, what I really found interesting was there was a study that looked at, at kind of profound hyperpyrexia, profound fever over yeah. 106. They looked at like 20,000 kids and pulled out the hundred of them that had a temperature over 106 and and look to see if it correlated to what kind of infection they had or what bacterial kind of or viral you mean right and you would think right intuitively you would say well clearly those kids have something seriously wrong and it was about half and half they they found almost identical numbers of kids that had bacterial proven bacterial etiology and proven viral etiology was was right down the middle. So even over 106 like the number doesn't correlate to the to the etiology yeah, which is that really interesting that is fascinating. And you, cause even today it's kind of like, well, his fever is one Oh four, something must be going on. Right. But I think you and I both know, like how many, how many influenza positive patients are now in the age of COVID like one Oh three is like, meh, but back in the day, you know, it was kind of like, he's a one Oh three fever. So, oh, yeah. you know, Four alarm fire. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, <laughs> but, but that's interesting. Cause that study actually came out before COVID and found that kids with fever like that, it doesn't really matter. Now we're talking strictly today, really about kids. We talked about the set point in adults, just because that's what a lot of these studies have looked at, but you know, in kids, it doesn't seem to correlate at all to the, to the level of temperature, whether it's a bacterial illness or it is a viral illness, but they can look sicker. I think that's kind of where we hang our hats. Like the kid looks sicker because temperature's higher. Right. So, so we start to get a little more worried. Yeah. And we were talking before we started the podcast, I, I found it really interesting that neonates and, and younger infants actually have a higher resting temperature, a normal, slightly their normal higher, temperature right. is slightly higher. Not, And this is where we came up with 100.4 because it's two standard deviations above what kind of the, the studies that looked at just all comers, normal temperature. Right. It, it's, it, it was higher than the average adult. Right. And exactly. that actually is reassuring to me because we talked about when when you have a, a seven day old that comes in and their temperature is 99.6 or 99.8, mm-hmm. it's tempting to look at that and go, well, is this, did we just catch it at the wrong time? And this is actually is a fever and right. we just didn't measure it right. Or is it going to check up? it again in half an hour? Yeah. That actually is a pretty normal temperature in that age of a child. And that really has to do a lot with their body surface area and their ability to sort of dissipate heat much more efficiently than, than a larger human. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Only in that neonatal period. And and again, that's not even truly a fever. So it's sort of actually on the same topic, like I was thinking, and we were talking about when parents come in and say, Hey, I think he had a temperature. And I say, do you measure the temperature? And they say, well, I didn't measure it. You know, that happens a lot to us. Right. So well, that got me thinking, is there any studies out there that looked at is is because you would think like a mom of like five kids who feels the temperature and sort of looks at it and says this must be a fever. I found a variety of interesting studies. Actually, one really large study um, that looked at like 400 kids, and they looked at how accurate parents are at essentially determining whether or not the child had a fever. So they essentially pulled these parents and they said, "Feel your kid, 
tell us if you think he has a fever and we'll measure the temperature. And these were kids that were like ill. Uh, and what they found was that the ones that the parents said, well, he, I think he has a fever. Actually, many of them still had a normal temperature. Um, right. Parents but, suck. Yeah. I was surprised by that. And actually the number of children that you have, it doesn't matter. Like they did up to five children and they could not figure out whether or not the, the child had a fever, but you and I both know that as physicians, we can go in and say, I think he has a fever. And then it's like 99. You're like, well, it must've gone away, you know, whatever. So, <laughs> right. Check so, it again. <laughs> yeah. So I think we're, I think, I think using our own hands and stuff, we have difficulty determining what the actual temperature of a patient is. And actually there was a study in Nigeria, which I thought was kind of cool because they didn't have a lot of thermometers. In this particular study, so they were trying to figure out whether or not parents were good indicators of temperature. And they found the exact same thing as a study that was done in the UK or the US, that basically parents are not good at determining when a child has a fever, but they are good at determining when they don't have a fever. So they can tell you if the parent tells you that right. the child did not have a fever, it's probably accurate, like within like 90% or more chance that that child did not have a fever, which is interesting to me. So I think you can trust it when it's when they say that the child didn't have a fever, but they said that they had a fever. It's very hard to tell, which actually is reassuring to me. And I think you too, when like a little baby comes in 28 day old and the mom says, I, he felt hot and you're like, Oh God, but I think we can <laughs> right. feel better about that. Right. So, right. Yeah. Now, did you come across anything? Because I've always heard that if a parent measured the temperature and it was high, then you can rely on that. You can take that to the bank. I didn't see anything about that, but I mean, that's kind of how I practice. Like if the parent said, Hey, it's, it was 100.5. I have to take it. That's kind of how I go with it. I don't know if that's what you do, but I that's what I have to do. I feel like it's... Well, it is what I do. I didn't run across anything study looking into research for this, but but I did when I was in residency a thousand years ago, I we did look into it and, and it was a thing. It did correlate. If a parent tells you a mm -hmm. number, then that number is pretty accurate. I think that's... I think knowing what we know about the methods of temperature measurement that we learned about sort of examining this topic, that temporal is very inaccurate those temperature measurement methods are seldom likely to give you a higher than normal temperature. They're usually going to give you a lower than normal temperature. So if a mom or a dad tells me, Hey, I took a temporal temperature and it was 102, I'm going to go with it. Cause I know that they, some of the data shows that those temperatures can be off by about a degree Celsius from what the actual core temperature is if done appropriately. So I, I usually just take that as it, on the surface. The caveat being one of those infrared things, if you right. point it at the head and shoot it, that can be falsely elevated. Right. So I do like to, I'd like to confirm those. True. Yeah. And that'd be a great study to do, I think. And I think on that same topic, as we're going down, we started looked at what, what really started this all off was two real questions that we had. One was, what is the duration and the level of a post-vaccine fever? And what is the duration and the level of a post-teething fever or a during-teething fever? And actually that's how this all started. And then we get into this whole fever rabbit hole. And what did you find out about this teething thing? Yeah, this is really interesting. Every kid is always cutting teeth, right? And so you have so many parents that bring in a kid and the kid is fussy and the kid is drooling and the kid and, and mom says, well, you know, he had a fever of 105 and I just figured it was because he was teething. Right. And, you know, this has been going on for three or four days and the kid is toxic and ill-appearing, you know, yeah. clearly the kid is not Obviously. teething, you know, yeah. you got a big yeah. problem. He was teething, but he's not right. teething he was anymore. Teething, but, you know, every kid is always teething. And so how much of that is legit and how much of that is just mom kind of chalking up to, to what she knows or, you know, how much is a, of it is is us just kind of placating the parent. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Your kid is teething and, and off you go. Um, interestingly, 
I found a study that that they hospitalized, but this is back in the 70s, they hospitalized 50 kids with a diagnosis <laughs> of teething. Which, I mean, this is dental hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what kind of hospital this was, yeah. but they admitted kids for teething. And 48 of the 50 had another identifiable cause of their fever or symptoms or whatever it was that they, they yeah, talked ranging about teething. from meningitis to scabies. Is that correct? That's right. One kid had a submandibular abscess, which, you know, just begs the question. Did you even look at the kid before you right. admitted him to the hospital? Or you just, you know, willy-nilly just putting everybody in. It was a different world back then. I yeah, guess. I guess so, right? But but the point being that what they were trying to say is teething, there are no specific symptom or constellation of symptoms that that is correlated with teething to the exclusion of any other disease. Right. So which it's I think more, is the take-home point. It's more likely you can't to just be. chalk up a serious complaint right. to teething right. based on either the temperature or the constellation of symptoms that they have. Yeah. It is essentially a diagnosis of exclusion. And, and, and we had found this meta-analysis paper that um, was done by I think a Academy of Pediatric Dentistry paper. And they found that like literally no measurement of kids they did a meta-analysis of all these different studies and they found that the only time that any mild elevation in temperature is detected on rectal temperature, and it was a very mild elevation, you might be able to say it's associated with teething, but it was a very weak association. And so I think that really kind of blew the cover off of this teething and fever thing for us. And I think really what it is, is you have kids who are teething, like you said, on a sort of regular basis and also getting viral infections on a regular basis. And so we have oft correlated that to their teething, but it is not due to their teething unless you can exclude all these other things. And not saying that every kid with a fever has terrible disease, but I think more than likely it's associated with some known pediatric viral illness that's out there in the community, right? That's that's basically what the sort of end game with this pediatric teething thing is, right? Right. Yeah. And the number one symptom that correlates with teething is gingival irritation. Well, right. Okay. Genius. Right. And the next one is irritability. Well, you know, what six month old is not irritable? Right. I, I don't find They're any all helpful irritable. Yeah. Uh, other than you're right. The, the correlation, there was one study that they actually just had parents measure the temperature of their kid every day and then kind of document when their when their first tooth erupted, their first yeah. tooth erupted. And there is a there is an increase in the three days prior to the first tooth eruption. There is an increase in temperature in those three days, but never does it cross fever. It yeah, never gets like over 100.4. 37.8, right? So it's like pre-teething right. fever. So we can maybe change our, our mantra. Is that what you're telling me? You could change yes, it to exactly. pre-teething fever, but, teething it, but it's not even not a fever. fever. It's not even a fever. So teething does not cause fever. That is not a thing, right? It Correct. does cause a mild elevation in temperature. It's not a thing. It causes a mild elevation in temperature, which is not detectable by normal vital sign means. And certainly not by any of the vital sign means that we use in the emergency department. So, so you you must search for the alternate cause for teething, right? Or right. teething Te related te fever. Correct. Teething causes as much of a fever as ovulation. Huh. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> I didn't get into that one. So <laughs> but and then and then the second thing that we had asked that question about, of course, the 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 meat of the podcast is really the last part of the podcast, right? But but what is this whole thing about post-vaccine fever? I think that is even more concerning to me because teething, it's kind of like, I always kind of felt that way about teething, but I didn't see, we didn't really have any data, right? But like for this post-vaccine fever, this is really interesting. Um, 
when kids get a vaccine, how long does it last? How high does it go? That was kind of our main question. And and because you get a 60 day old baby who just had their vaccines a little while ago and their temperatures 101, what do we do about that? Right. I think most of us logically say, well, we probably need to work that up because we don't really want to let that kid go home and say, it's just your vaccines. But what does the data say about that? What did you find? We found a couple of really interesting things. Right. And I think COVID really kind of brought this into the forefront because now it's not just your kid, right? Now it's now it's you that has, mm-hmm. you got a vaccine yesterday. And now, I mean, I've seen this, right? I'm sure. Yeah. You 103 have. fever. Yeah I, yeah. I had a vaccine for COVID yesterday. Now I got a fever and I feel awful. And what's right. wrong with me? Well, it, it's your vaccine. Right. There, there are a couple of studies that we looked at that were, that were pretty interesting. Most vaccine fevers last for 48 hours or less. Right. That I think is the biggest take home point. Yeah. It seems to like four days after a vaccine, no matter what it was. Yeah. That's not why the kid has a fever. Yeah. And this brings up this interesting study that was actually done that looked at the duration of fever and vaccines, and then looked at the rate of serious bacterial illness after vaccines that could be attributed the fever could be attributed to vaccine or a serious bacterial illness. And what they found, I think they looked at like 50 or 60 kids and they found that even though it was a small study, all of the children who had vaccines, it didn't matter about the degree of the temperature. It mattered about the duration. So there was one kid that had a fever, like 56 hours or 55 hours after the vaccine. And that kid had serious bacterial illness. All the other kids had a fever within 10 to 15 hours after the vaccine. And then it abated a basically 48 hours after. And those kids, these kids are all admitted to the hospital. And what they found was that those kids actually had no serious illness. They did fine. Everything was great. And so that's not to say that that's all inclusive because it is only 50 or 60 kids, but I thought that was interesting. And, and it was mirrored in a few other larger studies that basically said 48 hours is the appropriate duration of post-vaccine fever in a kid. And that interestingly, these kids actually, we thought that there would be a correlation between, Hey, you get a vaccine and the temperature goes to one or two and over one or two, you should think something else, but that, that didn't seem to be the case actually. Right. Right. That's correct. It yeah, really doesn't matter. Again, doesn't matter. Kind of to the point we made earlier, the, the number doesn't matter. Yeah. This, there was an interesting Korean study that actually they used an app in, I think South Korea, where they basically had an app that you, the parent could enter. Like my kid has a fever. I gave antipyretics. They had a vaccine. So the pediatrician basically gave them the app access and they said, Hey, if your kid has a fever, enter your kid has a fever. And if you gave them antipyretics, and then this group took that data and they basically created this paper out of it. And it was really interesting. There was a whole bunch of vaccines. They had like hepatitis A, MMR, uh, Tdap, all this stuff. And they looked at the degree of the fever, the duration of fever. They found the exact same thing. 48 hours of fever after vaccine, very normal. And they found that most post-vaccine fevers actually start about 10 to 15 hours after the vaccine. So like literally like two hours after the vaccine, that's, that's not a thing. So 10 to 15 hours was the average. And they found that different vaccines induce different levels of fever. The hepatitis A vaccine actually caused the highest level of fever. And the Tdap vaccine actually caused like the lowest level of fever, even though most people, more people complained about fever with the Tdap vaccine, but they suspect that is most likely due to the myalgias associated with that particular vaccine, but not the fever itself, which I thought was really interesting. And that makes some sense, right? So these viral vaccines. And we looked at, there was another study that looked at flu and they found that the live attenuated flu vaccine had generated a fever, but lower than the actual inactivated protein vaccine. And this goes into immunology and all this sort of stuff. But basically what they found was that the type of vaccine essentially determines the level of fever. And actually, if you really want to get into it, each vaccine sort of has a normal level of fever, but I don't think that we can really clinically correlate it. We can just say that 
different vaccines cause a different level of fever, but all vaccines can cause fever and not all patients who get vaccines are going to get fever. Is that right? Right. right. But if you get a fever, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Not a bad thing. It means exactly. the vaccine is working. You know, it's, it's kind of, I don't know. I don't know how many times you've heard this. I don't get a flu shot because every time I get the flu shot, I get the flu. Right. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, that's what we want you it's to do. Because it's working, it activates all those interleukins and, right. and that activates your prostaglandin and that creates a fever and it makes you gives you myalgias and it makes you tired and it it's the whole right. it means it's working. Yeah, it's, it's just not like actually the flu. You didn't get the flu. That's ridiculous. it's fake news. It's a fake news flu. That's all it is. <laughs> right. So that's all it is. It, one other thing I wanted to throw in here too, which um, I thought was really interesting, is that there was a study done that looked at MMR vaccination, a huge study, greater than five thousand kids between like ten and twenty months or something like that. And what they found was that the level of the fever, the one thing they could correlate was that the level of the fever correlated directly with the geometric mean titer of the patient's antibody response, which is really interesting. And as kids got older, if they're vaccinated, when they got older, their, if their fever was lower, their geometric mean antibody titer was much lower. So you could assume that the, 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 the fever that's obtained with vaccination actually is a good sign and indicates that you're generating an antibody response. And that's what we want. And that's exactly what you were saying. And that's what this group found. So I think that's really interesting and cool. We can kind of relate to our patients like, Hey, that's completely normal. It means you're generating an antibody response. And if you've got a higher fever, just take Motrin. And, and right. like we had shown in, in the sort of prior studies to this that we talked about, Motrin is actually a better antipyretic than acetaminophen, which I found really interesting. And I think that I would say, if you can take one, just take Motrin and get that fever down. But we want you to have the fever. It's not, it's not a bad thing, right? Right, exactly. And I think kind of like we talked about the COVID vaccine, when the patient comes in and says, Hey, I got the COVID vaccine. I feel really crappy. Well, that means it's working. That's a right. good thing. Exactly. Exactly. So I think summing it all up, Mike, um, let's go back and sort of, is that a thing we did? Is that a thing on like five different things? So let's kind of sum it up. Right. So is teething and fever a thing? Not a thing, not a thing, right? It's not a thing. So teething and fever is not a thing. It's more likely to be associated with other things that's going on with the patient. It's a diagnosis of exclusion. It's like the you know, feared gastroenteritis of fevers, essentially, right, if exactly. you will. Right. And post-vaccination fever, is that a thing? That is a thing within 48 hours. Within Beyond 48, 48 hours, hours, look for something else. How about if you have a fever over 102, then you must have a serious bacterial illness. Not a thing. And also what about Motrin and Tile are equally efficacious for fever control in kids? Not a thing. Motrin's better. Fascinating, man. Fascinating. And how it about is really all, interesting. It's fascinating, man. And how about like I run hotter? Not a thing. Cold. Not a thing. I can man. continue just... to roll my eyes when you say it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, dude. Hey, man. Well, thanks so much for joining me, man. Uh, this is an awesome one. And I think I learned a lot about fevers. And initially I was like, this topic's dumb, but I think it's actually one of the more interesting topics we've done. So um, yeah, I'm fascinated. And we didn't even get into the nurses and their blankets. Yeah. I couldn't find any data on that. Like, can I give them a blanket? <laughs> <laughs> I think if you give him Motrin, you can give him a blanket. That's what I would answer to that. Oh, I, I just always give them a blanket. <laughs> Turn give it up. A blanket. It's okay. <laughs> it's awesome, not going to kill them. Thanks uh, for having me. Enjoy oh, it. Thanks again, man.